0: Next is ProRata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Bridge Bank. Be safe. Venture wisely. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, the business of tear gas and a possible COVID-19 treatment. But first, the social media maelstrom. So yesterday, hundreds of Facebook employees reportedly walked off the job or technically logged off the job since they're working from home, due to the company's decision to not follow Twitter's lead in taking down posts from President Trump that they view as calls for violence. Several of the employees also publicly explain their decision. And if you know Facebook culture, this is a pretty big piercing of the big blue app. All of this, though, comes amidst broader conversations from the White House to Silicon Valley about the role of social media platforms in policing user content and at least one literal conversation with Axios reporting that Trump and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg spoke via phone on Friday night in a call that both sides referred to as productive. As of Sunday afternoon, though, there was no similar call planned between Trump and Twitter's Jack Dorsey. What comes next will likely be up to Congress, where there's an emerging bipartisan interest in revisiting a 1996 law known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which effectively shields Internet companies from liability for what their users post. Last week, we discussed how Trump issued an executive order related to the rule after Twitter opted to amend a fact check to one of his tweets. Today, we want to dig a bit deeper into how the rule could be changed, including the notion of using a revised version that arguably would focus more on tech company behavior than on user behavior. In 20 seconds, we will go deeper on that with attorney
1: Stuart Baker. But first, this. Bridgebank knows the ins and outs of business ups and downs and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridgebank has been dedicated to providing financial solutions to sponsor-backed emerging technology and growth companies for nearly two decades through its national network of banking teams and offices. Bridgebank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank, be safe, venture wisely.
0: We're joined now by Stuart Baker, a Washington, D.C. attorney with Steptoe and Johnson and a former assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush. So, Stuart, let's talk here. At this point in time, what do you see are the most salient criticisms of Section 230? There are
2: a lot of criticisms about the immunity. I think the principal objections to Section 230 is a sweeping immunity that was adopted 30 years ago when online media were tiny and had no real power and were at risk of being wiped out by one good judgment for slander or libel. And the immunity was put in place to make sure that didn't happen. Today, these are some of the richest corporations in the world, and they are exercising increasing power over what we can say. And we've become a little uneasy about that power. And that has led us to say, how big an immunity do they really need? And is it serving the broader public interest.
0: You talked in a recent piece about how, you know, these are companies that now can have, in some cases, you know, tens of thousands of content moderators. That said, they also have billions of users and hundreds of millions, if not more of that posts per day. And this is partially a technological question, I guess, but how reasonable is it from your perspective that these platforms truly can monitor everything that's on there so that if I libel you or slander you or threaten violence against you, say in a tweet or in a Facebook post, that they can quickly actually find that when there are so many any other posts going on simultaneously.
2: There's no possibility, even if they could find it, they wouldn't know whether it was true, which is a defense, or false. And I would never suggest that they ought to be liable for libel that appears on their site. The more interesting thing, and actually what the executive order focuses on, is not whether they should be regulated in what they allowed people to put up, but whether they should be held to a higher standard in what they take down. And there, what the executive order essentially says is at a minimum, they ought to enforce their own rules in an
0: even-handed and open way. Stuart, isn't that the same problem, though, in the following sense? So say there's a high-profile user. Obviously, the most high-profile user of Twitter is, is President Trump. But if there's a high-profile user that does something that violates the content policies, whether that be about violence, whether that be about public safety or whatever, and that gets either taken down or fact-checked, somebody with 20 followers, less high-profile, how does Twitter or Facebook necessarily find them, thus establishing a double standard? But as you said, how do they find find all of those.
2: Well, fair enough. In many cases, they find these things because they get complaints. By and large, that's how that happens. And so it's a perfectly fair response on the part of the platforms to say, oh yeah, you found this tweet that uh, wasn't taken down, but nobody complained about it. So now that somebody has complained about it, we can review it. That's not an unreasonable approach. It may also be reasonable for them to say, we have certain kinds of patterns that we look for. And if we see the pattern, then we review the post or the tweet. We're not saying they should find everything and treat everybody the way they treat the president. But if they're going to impose these standards, they ought to show that they impose the same standards on everyone.
0: You talked about back in 1996, the example was in your piece was AOL. Obviously, these were relatively small companies at the time, didn't have the resources. How do you view the idea of reforming or amending Section 230 today in 2020 and the impact that could have on the next Facebook or the next Twitter? You know, a startup that today does not have many financial resources but could be facing the same potential liability issues were the rule to be changed.
2: If you are smaller, you have a little bit more control over how you actually administer the company. Remember, I'm not trying to suggest that uh, we ought to impose liability for things that go up in most cases. It's more a question of what's taken down. This Section 230 immunity has been used to say, we take down competitors' tweets because we don't like having competition. That's not a good reason. And you shouldn't be immune from anti-competitive behavior
0: just to be clear there's no allegations that twitter has been for example pulling down tweets that you know are supportive of facebook or reddit or something like that
2: there is litigation in which the company that was accused of taking down competitors materials raised 230 as a defense and one
0: i'm curious your thoughts on what did happen last week with president trump and twitter from your perspective is that something that has legs obviously news events have overtaken that what do you see comes next i guess what's the next piece of this after the eo
2: there could be action at the FCC and maybe more likely at the FTC, although neither of them is enthusiastic about it. But I think that uh, the last part of the order in which the Justice Department is asked to draft legislation is the most likely next event. The Justice Department is going to suggest legislation and uh, Congress is going to give it some consideration, you know, until very recently both parties were very skeptical of where we are on Section 230. And so we may yet see some reforms.
0: So you do see this as potentially being bipartisan reform here. Obviously, this thing gets wrapped up in politics and partisan politics. But you think there is some common ground here between the parties?
2: Joe Biden said, I want to revoke Section 230. And I do think Everybody has to be just a little uneasy at the idea that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, just depending on what side of the bed he gets out of, could decide who the next president is by how he enforces the rules of uh, what you can and can't say on Facebook. We need to figure out how to make sure that we remain a democracy in which all voices count. And right now, I fear we're trending away from
1: that.
0: Stuart Baker, who you can find on Twitter, at Stuart Baker. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. My final two. Right after this,
1: Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors those committed to making the world a better place. Bridgebank has been dedicated to providing financial solutions to sponsor backed emerging technology and growth companies for nearly two decades through its national network of banking teams and offices. Bridgebank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank, be safe, venture wisely. Now
0: it's time for my final two. And first up is tear gas, which yesterday was used on peaceful protesters in front of the White House so that Trump could walk across the street for a photo op at a riot damaged church. As we reported this morning in the Pro Rata newsletter, two of the largest U.S. producers of tear gas are owned by private equity firms. One, a Pennsylvania company called Combined Systems is backed by a firm called Point Lookout Capital Partners, while the other, a Florida company called Safari Land is owned by Palm Beach Capital. In neither case, did the firms want to discuss their investments with me, which is notable because private equity firms typically love to talk about their portfolio companies with reporters. Now, to be clear, we don't know which company's canisters were used yesterday in Lafayette Square Park, but we do know that tear gas sits in a bizarre legal gray zone illegal to use in war, but okay to use by domestic law enforcement. And in a bit of positive news, drug maker Eli Lilly and a startup called Abcelera are working on what might be the first antibody drug to treat COVID-19. Yes, a new treatment, not a repurposed one or a vaccine. And there are two other antibody efforts by other drug makers expected to get underway shortly. Why it matters is that antibody drugs can be easier and faster to develop than our vaccines. For example, they don't have to be applied to the entire population, just to those who are sick. So the safety requirements can be lighter. Now, it is certainly unclear if the Lilly and Abcelera drug will work, but any good news right now seems to be good news worth sharing. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Rotisserie Chicken Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.